Come on in and find your seats. We want to get started here as soon as we can. Uh, we're excited about uh, the beginning. Well, the beginning was yesterday of our missions conference with Chris Anderson. Had two sessions yesterday. It was a great blessing as we talked through our worship as a church and directing our praise uh, to him. And this morning and all day today is going to be focusing on, well, this morning is going to be focusing on um, our, our role in missions and, and developing and growing a burden uh, to see the gospel spread. And uh, this morning, later on during the, the, the morning service, Pastor Paul will be talking more about um, faith promise as well. So be praying and thinking about that uh, as part of our missions conference. But we're excited to, uh, to hear uh, Chris Anderson both for the combined Sunday school and then he'll be preaching to us as well for the morning service. And then this evening at 6 p.m. we're going to have a hymn sing and uh, really exciting um, and I think it will be a blessing to you uh, as we sing through some songs here, some backstories on some of those songs, and, uh, and just praise the Lord together as a church. I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then I'll turn it over to Brother Chris uh, for our combined Sunday school. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for the gospel that you have um, brought to us, that we are the result of the Great Commission being fulfilled uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and, and now you've called us to continue spreading that, to advance the gospel together as a church, and I pray that you would uh, grow in our hearts a burden to see that, to see your gospel sent forth. Uh, I pray for Brother Chris as he uh, speaks this morning, that you would guide him uh, and, 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 and strengthen him as he shares your word with us, and I pray that we would be changed by your word as we listen this morning in your son's name we pray, amen. Brother Chris. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. And uh, for those who I met yesterday, good to see you again. Uh, for those who I didn't, uh, just a joy to be with your church family. Uh, I said yesterday that uh, actually Pastor Caleb asked me to come and uh, speak this weekend. And I didn't know if that, uh, if that invitation would uh, outlive his pastor here, but it did. And thank you to uh, Aaron and Paul for uh, the work they've done in organizing and getting this weekend together. Well, yesterday we spoke uh, mostly about worship and specifically about music. And uh, worship is more than music, but uh, music is a big part of that. And uh, today we're going to be focusing on missions. So when I talk about worship and witness, uh, we think of worship as our, as our adoration of the Lord, kind of our upward focus. And missions is our outward focus, but I want to talk about how the two of them uh, kind of inseparably go together. And um, we're going to be reading Psalm 96 in just a moment. Uh, I kind of have what what they call wanderlust. I want to go everywhere and see everything. Uh, how many of you just enjoy you enjoy traveling? You know. Um, what I'm doing right now is I, I travel so much um, speaking on missions, and um, most of that is in the United States, so I'm going to colleges and camps and conferences and churches, and whenever I can, I will uh, land somewhere, and if there's a baseball stadium nearby, I'm, I'm playing what I call uh, uh, baseball bingo. I'm trying to check off my card every baseball stadium. And uh, 
that had me Friday night landing in Orlando and driving over to Tampa. And I thought, you know, that's not too far. And I, I misjudged. <laughs> so I arrived at my hotel around 1 o'clock. Uh, but I, I knocked that off my, my uh, list. And, you know, I was preaching in the Los Angeles area. Um, the Dodgers and Angels were out of town, but I could drive a couple hours <clears throat> south to San Diego. And they were in town. I would, you know, check that off the list. <clears throat> Or I'll try to get to uh, I'll try to get to national parks and just just where I am, what what's around that's beautiful. Is there anything beautiful uh, in Palm Bay? Of course there is, right? Well, I I enjoy I enjoy seeing just the beauty of God's creation, and um, especially internationally. I enjoy international travel. I know some people are like, you know, I'm just staying in America, have no desire to see anything else. I, I love to see different cultures, different places. Uh, when the Olympics comes up, I enjoy watching. Um, I used to watch strictly as a fan of the United States. So I'm, I'm cheering for us to win and for everybody else to lose. And then I realized, Chris, you're watching a 13-year-old girl and you're hoping that she falls off of the uh, balance beam. You know, what, what is wrong with you? Uh, so I, I cheer for USA, but I also just kind of enjoy the spectacle, nations coming together, uh, all these different cultures. Anybody recognize this picture? Uh, that was painted by Norman Rockwell. And um, it just shows all the different cultures kind of coming together. In fact, this one I apologize for. I am near Orlando. Uh, I even enjoy it's a small world after all. all right, how many of you say like every time, do, do you go to Disney if you live here? Probably not. How many of you say every time I go, I have to go on it's a small world? And how many of you say you could not drag me onto that ride? <laughs> Shall we sing it together? It's a small world. <laughs> this is going to be in your head all day. I apologize. Uh, I actually love going through there, especially with my kids, and we're, you know, we're trying to figure out, hey, what country was that, and what country was that, and, and again, it's just kind of showing, in a silly way, uh, the diversity of creation and, and cultures, uh, what God has done. There is a, a video about a guy named Matt, and uh, he was paid by a gum company to go all over the world. And he did this little dance. It was terrible. He's not, he's not good at it. But he would go to all these different places and, and take a video with people and then put it together. I, I want to say like 70 countries. I watched something like that, and I'm just I'm fascinated. And I'm actually kind of moved by it. It's a silly video, but seeing people from all over the world uh, is, is just exciting. It's good, it's good for me. It kind of feeds my soul. And why is that? Well, because, because God has a desire not only to minister to Americans, uh, not only to minister to people in our culture that speak our language, God has, a, God has a desire and a plan, a commission to reach the world. Um, when you think about America's place in the Great Commission, we often think of ourselves as the great uh, senders. 
But actually, if you think of world missions for the last 2,000 years during, during the era of the church, you know, where does America fit in? We are the ends of the earth. You know, the gospel began in Jerusalem, and then as Jesus, uh, as Jesus commanded and predicted, it went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the, to the regions around Jerusalem, and ultimately, it went to the ends of the earth. So it would spread into Africa. It would spread into uh, throughout Asia Minor and then into Europe. And all of that happened for a good 1,500 years before America was even discovered. You know, America was one of the last countries to get the gospel. Uh, we kind of have focus that, you know, we're, we're kind of the hope of the world. No, actually, we're, we're the ends of the earth. The gospel is spread for 2,000 years and the Great Commission, the, the call of God to missions, is not kind of the fine print of the New Testament. It's not an addendum. You have biblical Christianity, and then we added missions to it. You know, it's not stapled onto the back. Missions is the very heart of God, and it's taught all through the New Testament. And we even have some foreshadowing of it in the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, when Jesus, kind of, kind of the high point, the, the climax of the book of Matthew was not the death and the resurrection. I, I probably would have ended the book of Matthew with a resurrection. You know, Jesus is alive again, beautiful, roll the credits. But no, it actually ends with Jesus commanding us, telling us that, that all power in heaven and earth belongs to him, and then commanding us, go into all the world and, and to make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations and to teach them and to baptize them. And then he says he's with us. So Matthew climaxes with this commission to make disciples. Mark sixteen fifteen is simpler. It just says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? To every creature. Go to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, Luke, this is kind of a, a lesser known of the great commissions, but Luke 24, uh, 46 through 48, Jesus says it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise again. And now he wants this to be preached. He wants us to preach what he's done. He wants us to preach repentance among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and then he says, you are witnesses of these things. Uh, Luke wrote that in Luke 24. And just, uh, just like any good sequel, he picks up with that at the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, the same author wrote Luke and Acts. And in Acts 1, he says that, that we're to be witnesses of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Every one of the Gospels kind of climaxes with this command to go make disciples, to preach the Gospel, to be witnesses around the world. Uh, John is a little bit different, but Jesus, toward the end of John, says, As the Father has sent me, and, and he came and he, he accomplished what the Father sent him to do. He says, As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. We are sent. Uh, the church I'm attending now... Um, I pastored for 25 years, but now uh, the Lord's called me to do this work of kind of a, a missions catalyst. 
And at the end of the services uh, at my church in Atlanta, instead of saying, you know, you are dismissed, they say, you are sent. We've been sent. And you've been sent to your community, uh, to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to your sphere of influence, to your school for some of you. But the church has been sent to the world, to the nations. We kind of see that highlighted or at least predicted in Psalm 96. I understand you're doing Psalms on Wednesday night. Have you done Psalm 96? All right, Psalm 96 is where we're going to be this morning. And in a moment, I'm going to read it. But I've started as I preach, before I read the text, I kind of give a snapshot of what's coming. Uh, that way, when you're reading, you're actually thinking. And, and if you think, during the scripture reading, the sermon is going to be almost over, um, because you will have caught it already. So what's happening in Psalm 96? Uh, this is an example of the jubilant praise of many of the Psalms. We talked yesterday about the Psalms of lament. You know, there are, there are 60 songs of lament out of 150, so 40%. And, and they're sorrowful or confused. You know, the psalmist actually will say like, God, I keep calling to you and I feel like you're not answering me. You know, why are you hiding your face from me? And are you allowed to pray like that? Well, the psalms say yes. You know, the psalms tell us how to pray when we're in despair, when we're discouraged, when we're confused. I tell people as I uh, counsel them as a pastor, you're allowed to pray mad. Just keep praying. You know, don't, don't let your frustration stop your prayers. Just speak honestly to God and say, God, I'm, I'm really struggling. Help me. And we have psalms like that, or we have psalms that are, uh, some of them are messianic. They predict Jesus. We have some psalms that are imprecatory. Imprecatory psalms are the ones where David says, get them. You know, bring justice to the wicked. But there are some psalms that are just full of praise. Psalm 96 is one of those, so it's, it's a happy psalm. But it's more than that. This psalm foreshadows the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's work. So primarily in the Old Testament, God was working through the nation of Israel. But this psalm, along with some others, is talking about including the nations. That, that God's plan wasn't only for the 12 tribes of Israel but it was for the world. Now, primarily the Old Testament, the Old Testament really didn't have a great commission. Uh, The Jews weren't commanded to go to the nations. You have a few exceptions, like Jonah. What what an interesting book that is. Uh, You know, we, we get excited about Jonah and the fish, but Jonah was not a good guy. You know, Jonah had a successful ministry in Israel. He loved it. And then God said, no, but I want you to go to Assyria. I'm going to send you to Nineveh, that great city. And and Ninevites were the enemies. The Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. God says, go and preach. And and Jonah says, I'm not going. And, you know, we have a detour. Uh, he He is saved by the fish and then in the fish, and then from the fish, and ultimately he goes and preaches. But even when he went and preached, he was kind of a reluctant prophet. He was really hoping that Nineveh would be destroyed. You know, and, and when God saved the Ninevites, Jonah's like, I knew it! 
I knew you were going to save these people. You know, that's why I didn't want to come. He, he pitches a tent and, and he looks out and he, he's waiting to see Nineveh destroyed. And, you know, God teaches him this lesson. He, he grows a gourd to give him some shade and Jonah's happy. And then he sends a worm uh, to kill the gourd and, and Jonah is so angry. He cared more about gourds than souls. You know, he, he was willing to see all of those hundreds of thousands of people, including women and children, he's willing to see them die. So interesting what God does um, in ministry. You have prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they're so godly, and they really didn't see much response to their preaching. And then Jonah's kind of a jerk, and he gets to see a revival. You know, it's, it's remarkable what God does. We have an example in the Old Testament of God sending out uh, Jonah. But most of the time, if the nations were going to come to worship Jehovah, they had to come to Israel. You had to go to Jerusalem. All right, so we have Ruth the Moabitess, and she converts, but not because there was a mission program in the Old Testament. We have the Queen of Sheba that comes to see King Solomon in all of his splendor, but, but it's not because there was a mission team that went to her. Uh, the Old Testament invitation was kind of come and see. Oh, but the New Testament is so different. The New Testament, we're commanded to go. And, you know, I, I don't have time to get into all the beautiful details of that. But, but God's plan is not for everyone to come to Jerusalem, but for Christians to leave and scatter across the world and preach the gospel. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? Well, how can you be Christians if you haven't been to Jerusalem? <laughs> and I joke about that, but the reality is you're, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't take a pilgrimage. You don't meet God in some city at a temple anymore. It used to be that way. But now God has, has actually changed everything. So now we don't go to a temple. We are the temple. What happened in Acts chapter 2 is so remarkable. You know, God, he's everywhere, obviously, but in particular, we read in the Old Testament that God was dwelling among his people in the tabernacle. You know, you had uh, the tabernacle and, and you actually had kind of this housewarming when Moses and all the builders finished the tabernacle. When God moved in, th there was this dramatic uh, sign of his coming. So, we have a wind and we have rushing fire and nobody could be in there because it was so overwhelming. And through the wilderness wanderings, do you remember what scripture says about uh, over the tabernacle? There was a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night signifying I live here among my people. Eventually they moved from the tabernacle into the temple. Solomon built it. Uh, David prepared the way. And when God entered the Holy of Holies, you know, there's a throne there, the mercy seat, and the Shekinah glory is hovering there. When God entered, all the priests had to stay away because there was this fiery presence that entered. What's that have to do with missions? Well, we come to Acts 2, the beginning of the church. And in Acts 2, when God pours out his spirit and the church 
is born, what was the, the sign of the coming of the Spirit? Well, they're, they're preaching in unknown languages. That's what tongues are, is un, unlearned languages. How great would that be? You know, if, if you could have gone to Brazil and not studied Portuguese, you know, you just had the ability to speak, that, that would be convenient. And uh, that, that's not happening today. But there was another sign. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room? There's a rushing mighty wind and the tongues or, or flames of fire. All my life I've read that like, that is so random. Why, why flames of fire? It sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds kind of hazardous. You know, did anybody have singed hair or what? What was happening there? You didn't have one flame of fire over the upper room. You had a flame of fire over this lady and that man, that older person, that younger person, that, that servant and that, you know, upper class wealthy man. Every individual Christian had a flame of fire. What, what was that? I think it's a continuation of what God was doing in the Old Testament. God lives in you, not in a, a tabernacle, not in a temple. We are the temple of God, and, and not just collectively, but, but we, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I think what God was doing is actually missional. Now, the temple was obsolete. God lives in his people and they're commanded to go all over the world. So you have the presence of God. The temple was kind of put on wheels and exported. So now Christians go to the ends of the earth. And everywhere we go, the presence of God is there. And we're taking the gospel and preaching it. The New Testament flipped everything on its head. We're commanded to go. Remember the first time I went to Africa. We will get to Psalm 96. Um, the first time I went to Africa, I was with people that had been there multiple times, and you know, we're driving out into the bush in uh, Uganda. And everybody I'm traveling with is kind of just catching up on sleep, trying to overcome jet lag. But I was glued to the window. I wanted to see everything. And I remember driving past people, uh, seeing two children, uh, two naked little boys, and they're playing by their hut and just, you know, just having fun. And then I'd see a lady with an impossibly high, um, you know, stack on her head that she's carrying. And that, that's still remarkable to me how they do that. Or I'd see a group of men. Uh, in Africa, you often see men on a motorcycle by the side of the road just kind of waiting. I think they're waiting to be hired like a taxi or something. But as I'm watching all these people, it just it kept occurring to me. That person's in the image of God just like me. That little boy is going to live somewhere forever just like me. You know, that lady will spend eternity in heaven or hell just like me. I'm not special. I'm one of 8 billion people. And, and God's love for me is not greater than his love for all these unnamed people I'm passing and scripture says, if those people don't come to know Jesus Christ as their savior, they're going to perish. 
How will they believe in somebody they haven't heard of? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will someone preach unless they're sent, Romans 10 says. And, and it just struck me that the urgency of the Great Commission, the urgency of getting the gospel to the nations, I, I feel like as, as American Christians, we, we really do believe that Jesus is the only way. Is that correct? Amen. Jesus is the only way. Amen. You know, nobody will come to the Father except through him. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. Jesus is the only way. Amen? Amen. If I taught another way this morning, you would throw hymnals at me. You know, kind of a, a 21st century stoning. But what are we doing then to get the gospel to the unreached? Is, is it unacceptable to you that there are people who will be born and live and die and not even hear the name of Jesus? Is it intolerable to you? We, we can't get used to it. We can't get used to it. It's not okay. There are people that... that they haven't trusted Jesus because they haven't even heard his name. Don't get accustomed to that. Don't say, oh, that's regrettable. No, it's a travesty. And we need to engage. We need to be praying for more laborers. We need to be considering that maybe God would use us instead of, instead of just continuing kind of a, an American dream of let's, Let's make more, get a nicer car, get a bigger house. Maybe, maybe God will call some of us to go and, and to at least address this need of the lost. Psalm 96 is predicting that. That God's plan is not only for Israel, but for all the world. And then finally, the psalm actually goes further and it foreshadows the new creation when nature is celebrating rather than groaning. We know we live in a fallen world. You know, uh, who is it? Uh, Louis Armstrong that sang, It's a Wonderful World. I said to myself, What a wonderful world. All right. Well, the world's beautiful, but it's fallen, it's cursed, you know, it, it's bloody. There is cancer, and there are wars, and there's genocide, and there's tragedies all over the place. We, we need this world to be fixed. And Scripture predicts a time when Jesus doesn't only save humanity, but he's going to save all of creation. He's going to make all things new. There will be no more curse. And Psalm 96 kind of whimsically predicts that time where Instead of creation groaning, even creation is joining in joyful praise of the Lord. So with all of that in mind, let's read the psalm and uh, look for those themes, especially look for the themes that talk about the inclusion of all the world, not just a small select group of people. All right, Psalm 96. This is the word of God. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory 
among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Okay, so this inclusion of the nations is not ecumenical. It's not saying, well, you know, we all worship something. It's okay. No, no, no. The Lord is the only true God. We declare His glory. He, he's far better than the all quote-unquote gods. Verse 5, for all the gods of the people, uh, peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. I love that. You know, if, if you have an eye on American politics, aren't you glad that time is coming when the Lord will judge people with equity? You know, Lord, come. Uh, what, what a mess the world is in. Come and fix it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His faithfulness. What a beautiful psalm. Let's take just a look at it. And uh, then I want to draw a couple conclusions and uh, especially kind of quickly tell my story of how God has moved me from pastoring to full-time missions work. And uh, we have a lot to do in the next 15 minutes, 10, 15. Is that, is that when we're finished? 10.30 we finish. We finish at 10.30. Oh, mercy. Nothing but time. <laughs> What's happening in Psalm 96. Just two points. The first is this, that God deserves praise from his people. You know, so, so the people of God, the Israelites, are commanded to worship him. And, and when we worship God, we're, we're not doing something that is particularly you know, virtuous or sacrificial. We're, we're just giving him his due. How many times did we read in the text, give unto the Lord the glory, do his name. You know, we worship God because he is worthy of worship. Uh, we're just doing what is reasonable. Uh, we're doing what we were made to do. And then when we failed, uh, we were saved to worship. So, so our, our calling is to bring glory to God. God deserves praise from his people. And that's worship. So we're honored to sing and speak to the Lord. As we talked about yesterday, uh, we have this command in verses 1 and 2. Sing, sing, sing. Three times in a row. The most frequent command in Scripture is the command to sing. You know, the command to worship God is so central to what He's doing in the world. 
in, in John chapter 4, you have Jesus saving the Samaritan woman, and then Jesus saving a Samaritan village. And in the middle of that, you have a discussion about worship. Had I been Jesus' editor, which is a blasphemous way to start a sentence, um, I would have said, you know, listen, or, or John, listen, you're talking about evangelism and missions. Why do you put, why do you put uh, worship in the middle of that? And the answer is that worship is in the middle of everything. You know, God is saving a Samaritan woman because he's going to turn her into a worshiper. God is saving a Samaritan village so that idolaters come to worship him. We're made and saved to worship. We sing unto his name. I love that when you, when you see in verse 4, we have this command, sing, 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 declare. And then, then you have four. What would, be a, what would be a synonym for the word four in verse four? Because, because. See, the Bible doesn't just call us to expressive, emotive, joyful worship. It says, worship the Lord because, and then it starts talking about his character. Worship the Lord because he is good, because he is great, because he is glorious, because he is holy. So we have this laser-like uh, focus on God where we're just recalling his attributes. You know, I, I challenged people last night to, to pray without asking for anything. I mean, at least for a, for a, a season, a session. You know, you, you can cast your cares on the Lord. You can bring your requests, ask. But sometimes just praying with a focus on God and, and not making any ask would, would be good for your soul and pleasing to the Lord. So the word nerd that I am, uh, I, talk about, I talk about parts of speech. Some of you, I just lost you. You're, you're in a mental coma now. Uh, but what do, I, what do I mean? We're, we're recalling God's titles. And all through the Psalms, those are nouns. We've talked about that, his titles. What, what are some of the titles of God from the Psalms? Go ahead. He is a ruler. He is a, he's a king. He's a, he's a shepherd, a shield, a savior, a fortress, the Lord, a rock. All right. you, you go through the Psalms, and if you were actually to, during your Bible reading, read the Psalms for a while and make a list of just the descriptions of God. You know, and, and beautifully, he's not only a shepherd, he's my shepherd. So, so you look for those things. Uh, the next one is his attributes. Those are adjectives. All right, There's, they're descriptive terms. What are some of the attributes of God revealed in Scripture? He's holy. He's almighty. He's merciful. He's wise. He's, he's loving. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering. Aren't you glad for that? He's, he's forgiving. He's sovereign. So, so you read the Bible with an eye for the descriptions of God, and then you take all of that and you just praise him. God, I praise you that you are my king. 
and you are majestic. You are sovereign. You have splendor, and, and I worship you. The last one is verbs, the action words. You know, what are the descriptions of what God does throughout the book of Psalms? All right. He defends us. He, he judges. He forgives. He leads. He feeds. He restores. He lifts our heads. He redeems. So, so we read the scripture not primarily for a nugget to get us through the day. You know, which is pretty utilitarian. Um, you know, what's in this for me? No, you read the scripture and say, God, I want to know you. Show me you. And the whole Bible is God's self-revelation, but the Psalms are kind of, you know, in bright technicolor. This is what God is like. So we worship him. Our worship is, it's focused on God. It's consistent with his character. You know, we, we come to God made holy through Christ, but trying to live holy lives because he's holy. We're to be holy as he is holy. Uh, we come to God worshiping in a manner that is consistent with who he has revealed himself to be. And again, we have this kind of whimsical description that one day uh, all the world will worship him. Uh, not just people, but all of creation. And to some degree, that's already happening, right? Psalm 19 Already the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Uh, but this psalm describes a time that uh, we also see predicted in Isaiah 55. Uh, I mentioned uh, Luke 19. That's where the religious hypocrites are telling Jesus during the triumphal entry. They're like, stop these people from praising you. And what does Jesus say? If they didn't praise me, the very rocks would cry out. You know, the, the trees are going to praise him. The, the heavens are going to praise him. I, I think that's all symbolic. You know, I, I don't think the trees are actually going to speak, although that would be cool. <laughs> it sounds like Middle Earth or something, you know, a, a scene from Narnia. I actually have, have wandered through different places and uh, Mere Woods, M. U-I-R, mere woods north of uh, San Francisco, these massive trees. And when it's quiet, you can, you can kind of hear these trees creaking. And like, you know, th there is this, this praise to God that we see in creation. Oh, but it's going to get better. You know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be beautiful. Jesus didn't only come to save us, which is primary. Praise God. He's going to redeem the world. You know, Adam broke the world. And Jesus, when he returns, all creation is going to be put under his feet. So, so the dominion mandate that Adam blew, the dominion mandate is going to be completed by Jesus. He will have dominion over all creation. He'll make everything new. There's not going to be any curse or sin or death or disease or war. Jesus, come fix this mess. And, and you imagine, the world that is so beautiful now is under the curse. What is the new heaven and new earth going to be like? 
I wrote a line of a hymn anticipating the new creation. And the idea is that the fallen world, like fallen men, needs to be reborn. You know, we're, we're lost in sin. We must be born again. And even all of creation is under sin. Creation needs to be born again, if you will. And really the climax of Scripture, we get to Revelation 21 and 22. Behold, I make all things new. You know, there's not going to be any more tears. He's, he's going to make everything perfect. It, you have this, this arc in Scripture where we move from the perfection of Genesis 1 and 2, and then Genesis 3, everything falls apart. But Genesis 1 and 2 are kind of recreated in Revelation 21 and 22. The beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible, is, is a new and improved Eden. Jesus is going to do that. Jesus deserves to be worshipped by his people. The late Warren Wearsby, in a book on worship, said, We worship God because he is worthy, not because we as worshipers get something out of it. We worship God because he is worthy and because he has commanded us to worship him. Now, now we do get something out of it. It's, it's, it's enjoyable for us. It's transformative for us. As we look at Christ and worship him, we're changed into his image, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. But we worship God because he's worthy. Now, here's a question for you. When Psalm 96.4 says that God is great and therefore greatly to be praised, look at Psalm 96.4. We, we have all these descriptions of you know, declaring his glory among the nations, declaring his marvelous works among all the peoples, because the Lord is great and therefore greatly to be praised. What does that mean? God is great and greatly to be praised. What, what is the psalm calling for? He made us so we should respect and honor him. Yeah. His greatness means he's greatly to be praised. Is, is it asking for louder singing? Paul would say, amen. <laughs> join, join the choir. But, you know, I, I've kind of thought our, our, our songs should be louder or our songs should be better. I, that's fine. It's probably true. But Psalm 96 4 says, God is so great, he's greatly to be praised. What it's calling for is more worshipers. Why do we declare his glory among the nations? Because the Lord deserves to be worshiped. God is so great that people who are bowing several times a day to Allah should be worshiping Jesus. Because he's so great, he deserves to be worshiped. People who are lost in Hinduism should be worshiping Jesus. You know, people who are bowing to idols should be worshiping Jesus. People who are atheists should be worshiping Jesus. We declare his glory among the nations. We, we declare his greatness to all the earth because God is so great, he deserves more worship. That's that John 4 angle. You know, why is, 
why is Jesus giving the gospel to this outcast Samaritan woman? And she was, she was an outcast. I mean, she, she was an outcast among the Samaritans. If you're a social pariah among the Samaritans, that's about as bad as it can get. You know, she's avoiding people. She goes to the well in the heat of the day. Why didn't she go in the morning with all those other ladies? Because if you've had five ex-husbands, what else do you have? Five ex-mothers-in-law. <laughs> Ten or fifteen ex-sisters-in-law. You know, she's ashamed. She's an outcast. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm going to bring salvation to you. I have water that can satisfy your soul. She comes to Christ. The entire village comes to Christ. They acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world, John 4, 42. And what that means is he's not just the Savior of the Jews, because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, but, but Jesus isn't the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. And in the middle of that, we have this description of worship. John 4, 23 and 24 says, We worship God in spirit and in truth. But then you have this, this nugget, because God is seeking people to worship him. God is seeking worshipers. And what you have is John 4, 23 says, God is seeking worshipers. Luke 19, 10 says, Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And it's the same thing. Jesus is seeking the lost because the Father is seeking worshipers. And, and Jesus is transforming the lost into worshipers. We go to the world so that Jesus will be praised. You know, our church has been blessed to send out missionaries, as, as I'll describe in a moment. And, you know, why would we send, why would we send a missionary to Nepal? Because we want people from Nepal to be with us around the throne praising the Lamb. Remember, Revelation says that there's going to be this congregation focused, you know, the, even the seating arrangement or standing arrangement is it's circular and the throne is in the middle. All attention is on God. And there will be people from every tribe and tongue and and kindred and nation. Every people group will be there. We're sending a missionary to Nepal because we want more uh, Nepalese people to be around the throne. We're sending missionaries to South Africa because we want more South Africans with us around the throne. We're, we're increasing the number of worshipers. Why? Because God is so worthy. Uh, John Piper famously put it this way in his book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. It's kind of an odd statement. What's that mean? It means we do, we do mission work to gather more worshipers. We want more people worshiping Jesus, turning from their dead and worthless idols. We share the gospel so that God will be glorified. We're going to talk about that this morning in the message from 3 John. Uh, missionaries are people who have gone out for the sake of Jesus' name. They've gone out so that Jesus will be praised and adored by more people. So, the second point finally is this. 
God doesn't just deserve praise from his people. God deserves praise from all people. And with that in mind, we're commanded to go to the nations. We don't just speak to the Lord. We sing and speak about the Lord and we exalt him to the lost. We invite them to come. So again, if, if we were to reread this and you know, kind of underline the reference to the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples, it, it would hit you, just the, the repetition of it. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord who? All the earth. Declare his glory where? Among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Again and again and again. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Everybody. All you people worshiping these, these worthless idols. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. We declare his works among all the nations. Inviting them to come and worship with us. Again, you have this prediction in Psalm 96, a prediction of all the nations coming to worship Jesus. You know, it's, it's anticipating a time that Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. And we don't want that to be a coerced worship. We want them to turn to him as Savior so they don't face him as judge. We declare the work of Jesus among all the nations praying that more will come and worship him. With all of this in mind, um, just a work of God's grace. Uh, the church I pastored in Atlanta, Killian Hill Baptist Church, uh, not, not huge. I mean, good-sized church, but, but that's, that's basically us. Uh, we would generally have like 300 people, probably comparable to here. Uh, but by God's grace, he did a work where, where he allowed us to send a bunch of people out to missions. And kind of the question that, that got rooted in my, in my mind is, what if success in ministry means that we send people rather than just collecting people? You know, for, for many churches, especially I think many American churches, how do you tell if a pastor is succeeding? Well, the church keeps getting bigger. You know, the budget keeps getting larger. We have, we have new members. And, and you know, we, we have this measure of success. If we had 50 last year, we want 60 or 70 next year. And the church should just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But what if success sometimes means that the church gets smaller, not from a church split or whatever, but Smaller because we're sending people to more needy areas. We're deploying people. I, I compare it to a family. You know, what if I told you my wife and I are such effective parents that our children will never leave? You know, we're gonna we're gonna keep them in our basement until they're fifty. Somebody should call social services and say these poor girls need help. No, my job as a parent is to train them and then to send them. And I'm at that stage of life. I'm an empty nester now. So my family went from two, and God gave us a baby girl. We had three, 
and another baby girl, so we had four, and another baby girl, so we had five, and another baby girl. Four daughters, six of us. Four daughters. I feel like we should pray a second. <laughs> and then a day comes where I walk my daughter down the aisle and, and place her hand in another man's hand and her, her mother and I give her away to be married. That night we went home and there were only five. Is that failure or success? Success. And then the next one graduates and has a job, and there's, there's kind of four under my uh, responsibility. And the next one is about to get married in October, and there will be three of us. And the last one is at college, and, and we're back to two. Well, our family's not growing. I guess we've blown it. Well, actually, our family is growing. You know, we're, we're gaining sons. Uh, the boys finally have arrived. <laughs> And in time, we'll probably have grandchildren. And, and actually, there's multiplication, there's growth, but it's, it's not all in my house. The church isn't just gathering people to stay. And there are churches that, that hold on to people, you know, like, like white-knuckled. They're, they're not going to leave. I did my internship in Chicago years ago. And there was this bulldog of a pastor, you know, just really intense. And... Uh, you know, church about 800, they were building a big new building. And I asked him, I said, you know, you have some people driving an hour to get here. And you have like eight pastors on staff. Have you ever considered planting a church an hour away? You know, with one of your staff members and, and start a local church over there where the people are driving from. And this pastor, I'll never forget it. He says in a gruff voice, he says, if some people want to be pious and give people away, they can. I figure I got them here. I'm keeping them here. <laughs> wow. That, that is not the spirit of the New Testament. The spirit of the New Testament is to be generous with people. You know, e- even, even uh, Pastor Caleb launching, there's biblical precedent for that. You know, Paul and Barnabas leave. And the church at Antioch was fine. Everybody's expendable because the Lord is there. And seeing your church is such an encouragement to me because uh, there's a statement by Augustus Strong. He says, the test of a man's ministry is not while he's at the church, but after he leaves the church. And then it will be apparent if he made people dependent on him or on Christ. Okay. Faith Baptist Church is built on the foundation of Christ. And, and it can outlive any pastor, and, and it continues because we're, we're all expendable, and sometimes God sends people out. Well, in our church, we had the privilege of sending people out. First family were the Browns. Uh, he was, years ago, a lawyer in Philly, uh, making a good income, and I'm sure doing good work, but he just felt like, you know, I think there's something more. And God called him to missions. Now, he was in our church for about five years. We loved it. He was probably our best disciple maker. But then the Lord called them back to the mission field, and we got to send them to South Africa. I'm telling you, when this family left, man, they left a hole. Uh, we needed them. 
but not as much as South Africa needed them. They're going to make disciples among the nations, declaring God's glory to the lost. Uh, there was a young man in uh, Bible college in Atlanta was attending our church, and uh, Zach was probably our best evangelist. He would actually go to refugee areas, make friends, actually even move in with them and, and just give them the gospel. And uh, we had the privilege of sending him and his wife and their newborn to the Himalayas. I can't be more specific because it's a closed country, but, but in the last year, finally, all their support was raised. They were ready to go. We got to send them, and we miss them, but they are more needed somewhere else. You know, we, we don't just keep collecting the light where it is. We scatter the light to, to the darkness. You know, we, we go to the unreached. We say, well, we're a gospel-centered church. You're not a gospel-centered church because you preach the gospel and sing the gospel. You're a gospel-centered church because you also export the gospel. You preach the gospel. You spread the gospel. He's in the Himalayas. I was, uh, came back from a mission trip, and I'm preaching on missions and preaching on this particularly needy country. And uh, that afternoon, I get a call, and uh, this guy was a firefighter. And his wife was a teacher and then a mom, beautiful kids. Both of their parents were in the church. They'd been there their whole lives. And he called me the afternoon. He says, Pastor, I think the Lord might be calling us to, to go to that country that you mentioned. And, you know, here they have a comfortable life. They're serving the Lord, teaching Sunday school. But instead of just ministering among other Christians, they wanted to go to the unreached. Went to a difficult place. Taking the gospel where it's not. A friend of mine, uh, David Hasefluk, says the mission's goal is not to have the biggest church in town or the best church in town. It's to have the only church in town. We want to go where the gospel's not. They went. Now, during the service, they were texting this other couple, uh, the Browns, uh, Brown Jr., uh, the son of that first couple. And they were texting them, and I, I thought, you know, they were taking sermon notes. Uh, they were writing a text and they said, hey, we think we're going to go. Would you go with us? And the Browns initially said, yeah, be warmed and filled, but no. <laughs> and then they must have read Jonah and said, you know, actually, um, maybe, maybe we should go. God called them and both families now have been in Southeast Asia. Uh, he was our elementary principal. And there, there came a time, finally, uh, I get a call from Doug Abels. He says, hey, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay, where are you going? You know, I, I know what's coming. And uh, he was our head of school. We really needed that guy. But God had called him to train nationals in Africa and the Middle East. And the Lord called them away from us. Uh, one of our deacons and one of our teachers in the school called and said, Pastor, we need to meet. Yep. Lay down. Where are you going? They're church planting in Idaho among Mormons. And we lost them. And uh, there was another deacon who had been aspiring to ministry. We actually had a group of uh, a group of men, different ages, where we're just praying about, Lord, could you could you use us and send us out into ministry? And and he became a pastor of a church in Atlanta. Uh, this man's a retiree. I mention that because you know you're retired and you say, well, this is not for me. Actually, it might be. This man has spent his entire life organizing business. And then when he retired, the Lord is now using him 
to train missionaries. And he's using all of the skills that he learned in the corporate world. And he's saying that, now let me pass this on to you. And he called me, he said, Pastor, if, if I uh, you know, take this role training missionaries and, and uh, I have an opportunity to be a president of a Spanish-speaking uh, Bible Institute, if I do it, I'm probably not going to be able to be the Sunday school superintendent. I'm probably going to have to back out of some responsibilities. You know, what do you think? Yeah, go. We, we have a deep bench. Somebody else will step in. You're, but, but go to the need. Uh, another family nearing retirement, uh, they're traveling doing camps abroad with the wilds. And they actually spent two years in China teaching English where they could go and teach English, but also evangelize. They got to see some fruit. Uh, their son was on our staff, but the Lord recently launched him to Michigan, and, and Michigan needs missionaries, <laughs> speaking as a Buckeye. Uh, the Lord allowed us to send him out. There was somebody else that was on staff in our business office, and he just became uh, one of the pastors, uh, taking the place of, of the guy that went to Michigan. The Lord just kept sending people out to ministry. Uh, we had a family come, the Ajamangs, uh, Kwame, and uh, they come, and, and I'm all excited. You know, we, we want our church to be as diverse as our community, and this family comes in, they love Jesus, and, and it's going to be a great add to our church. I made a mistake. I asked him to teach a Wednesday night Bible class. And as soon as he started, you know, five minutes in, I'm like, man, this guy is called to preach. I took him to lunch. And I said, Kwame, have you ever considered that, that maybe God's call is on you? You're gifted as a preacher. And it was, it was exactly the spark he needed. And now he's training for ministry and he just joined the staff of the church. It just kept happening. And this is, this is the last family that went out on my watch. It was my family. Uh, so there's my four girls. Our son-in-law, there's another son-in-law coming. He, he can't be in the picture until they're married, you know, when it's official. And God called me after 25 years pastoring, God called me to, to kind of beat the drum, wave the, wave the banner for missions, trying to convince other churches to have a sender mindset. You don't hoard people. You don't collect people. You train and deploy people. So, so now I, I get to preach missions all the time. I, I can't call people to missions, but I can be an agitator. You know, I, I can remind them how often the Bible speaks about it. And I can pray very specifically, Lord of the harvest, send forth labors. I'm, I'm going to pray today to close our session. And I'm not just praying Matthew 938 in general, Lord, send labors from somewhere. I'm going to pray, Lord of the harvest, send forth labors from Faith Baptist Church. Send forth more. You just sent one, but Lord, send more. And let's pray together that the Lord will allow us to be part of preaching the gospel to the nations for his glory. Lord, thank you for the time in your word today. And uh, I pray that you would use your word by your spirit to challenge our hearts to be more engaged in missions, to be more burdened, more prayerful, even to consider going. Lord of the harvest, I pray that some from here would, would see your commands and hear your call and would consider launching for the sake of Jesus' name, for your glory, because you are great and you deserve to be praised by more and more and more people. So Lord, do your work even among this church for your glory. We thank you. We'll give all the glory to you, not to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.